This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to another installment of Lends Me Your Ears, the movie show that takes a look at new movies in theaters or on streaming devices and compares them to films from days gone by, whether it's the same kind of genre, maybe a similar director, or will profile the work of a specific actor. But in this case, we're taking a deep dive into the world of dark carnivals inspired by Nightmare Alley, the new film from Guillermo del Toro. And my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Saltwire Network and the Chronicle Herald. Hi, my name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris you can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And we'll give out a hearty hey rube and take you down the midway right after this. We're talking about movies set at carnivals that intersect with carnivals in some capacity and, you know, made me think a lot about the carnivals that I've been to in my life, the games of chance, the strongman. Uh, I've never, I don't know if I've ever seen Siamese twins in real life, but certainly the house of mirrors, the fire eater, the psychic, the ventriloquist, the little people, the giants, the tattooed lady, maybe the tattooed lady is less of a draw these days. Uh, but you know, the appeal, you just of, go to a nine inch nails show. And that, <laughs> there you go. Fine. Um, but, you know, carnival movies still draw people in, obviously, if we're seeing a new one. And uh, I wonder about the appeal of them. The the chan- Is it the chance to tell stories about the dark side of human nature? You know, that it's basically noir under the big top. Is it a morbid fascination with those so-called freaks that uh, that were the staple of, of sideshows going back to, you know, 100 years ago or further? Um, and then it made me think about the difference between a carnival and a circus, not that that's sort of like a little rabbit hole to go into <laughs> etymology of these things. But well, but, sometimes you know. they used to go hand in hand, and sometimes they 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 were kind of exclusive. But uh, all part of that traveling roadshow. Yeah, thing. yeah. And what do you think is the appeal of these films? I mean, wow, well, we've just watched a bunch of them. Well, I mean, uh, this kind of thing has been featured in cinema going back to the first time, you know, the earliest years of someone cranking a, a camera. I mean, if you think about it. Uh, the George Méliès, the uh, French film pioneer who made those great early trick films, trick photography films. Uh, I mean, he was a stage magician, so uh, and and he toured, so he would have been from that tradition, and he that would have been in his bones when he uh, started making films. So, uh, you know, I suspect that a lot of the early film pioneers uh, had some background in that world and kind of brought that fascination with them, and and. Uh, Certainly, uh, Todd Browning, who we'll talk about later in the show, uh, frequently returned to the milieu of the the carnival and the sideshow in in many of his films, and we'll we'll uh, we'll see that um, in some of uh, his work, and also remakes of some of his work uh, later in the show. So I, I just feel like maybe there's like a gray area where one kind of entertainment crosses over into another, um, and certainly you know you think about the fact that early on films were actually part of vaudeville uh you know often vaudeville shows would include a short film as an intermission or as a segue between acts and that kind of thing so i feel like uh in in terms of showmanship and ballyhoo and all that kind of thing there's always been a bit of a tightrope between the world of of the traveling carnival and uh 
you know, the traveling uh, roadshow that became the, the movie business. And, you know, these stories that we watched uh, in these films, these aren't, uh, there aren't too many happy tales here. I mean, really, it's, there, there's someone is usually being exploited by someone else. And, and that's a frequent thing coming up. It's like, you know, the, the, the people who are the attractions wanting more freedom, wanting more power, wanting to get revenge, uh, you know, these aspects of, of and, and, and also seeing people as, as human beings rather than just someone to be looked at, you know, in a, in a, in a, in show, the darker side of show business. Well, I think that is part of the appeal to, to screenwriters and, and filmmakers in that, that it is a multi-layered mysterious world. You know, there's the, what happens on the stage in the sideshow, and then there's what goes on behind the curtain and on the, the behind the tents and so on. And it's this, the, the, the kind of human drama that it takes place there. And I, I think, uh, that's a very appealing thing for a lot of filmmakers. And also it's a very colorful world to inhabit. Um, there's, um, there's certainly a lot of different character, um, outsized character types that, that, that make the films more engaging in a lot of ways. And, uh, certainly, uh, you know, it's it's an endless fascination with with uh, the kind of people that take on this kind of life of of being on the road and you know ostensibly show business, but you know a, a, an end of show business that uh, rarely seems to end well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And clearly, Guillermo del Toro has a fascination with this. Back in October 2017, I was in Toronto uh, and I saw his remarkable At Home with Monsters exhibition at the Art Gallery of Ontario. I was so glad to go and see that because he has an incredible collection of dark treasures uh, and it, it provided a window into the filmmaker's obsessions. Now, I have a lot of time for del Toro's generally. Uh, I love his films, you know, everything from Pan's Labyrinth to Pacific Rim to his Oscar triumph, The Shape of Water. So this film, Nightmare Alley, which we're going to start with today from 2021, from last year, um, is a his follow-up to The Shape of Water. And after winning the Oscar, of course, he can do whatever he wants. And what he has chosen to do is another period thriller set in the past, but you know, Nightmare Alley may be one of the first films of his that does not dwell on either supernatural or sci-fi phenomenon, but the pretense of such. And it's something else altogether. It's a deep and murky and at times punishing noir, uh, a story who that was adapted once before, 74 years ago, with Tyrone Power in the leading role. Oh my God, was that long? <laughs> Holy smokes. Yeah, 1947. Um, and uh, it's that film is on the Criterion channel. We're going to talk about that as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, and I'm fascinated by variations and adaptations, even though I hadn't read the original, the book this is based on. Um, these, these two versions of Nightmare Alley do have a lot in common. Both are set in the 1930s and follow a deeply flawed protagonist, Stanton Carlyle. He's a proud, clever, fast-talking huckster who works at a grimy, low-rent traveling carnival. Um, now, he uh, he stokes his gifts for the grift. He poaches an act from a couple who've been in the game for years, Xena and Pete. It's a mentalist scam that requires a code between performers to work. Now, Stan romances the young, pretty Molly right under the nose of her sort of protector, uh, Bruno, the strongman, and sweeps her away, and soon they're headlining the mentalist act in the big city, but Stan's ambitions don't stop there, and he meets a psychotherapist, Dr. Ritter, and he realizes he's found a partner for our much bigger scams. Now, this is, in Del Toro's version, he luxuriates in this material, adding all sorts of nuance and subplots, and, um, uh, and, and Stan himself, I think, is a 
pretty complex character, uh, played by especially played by Bradley Cooper, who has shown himself to be you know one of our you know leading man out of Hollywood. He he can of course he can direct, he can write, and he's he's pretty terrific as a charismatic lead. And and here he you know he doesn't tip his hat quite as early about his weakness and his cunning. He's he's a little more quiet and maybe a little more sympathetic a character. But as he goes along, we start to understand more, like, all the things going on under the surface. Well, how long is it before he actually says any dialogue? Because he has a number of scenes that are completely silent. Uh, and... Uh, which I loved. I love the fact that it just gives every indication that this is a guy who plays his cards close to his chest, uh, literally, I guess, and when we get to the importance of, uh, of the tarot deck uh, later in the story. And I, I was I was really impressed with the fact that they, they kind of let him stay in silence for so long in the film before – you know, before he actually, you know, let him express himself through actions and facial expressions and that kind of thing. And that's, uh, you know, Del Toro clearly loves being able to show uh, as well as tell. And uh, he does a lot of that in this film. Yo, absolutely. Um, he layers mood upon mood. And of course, his passion for pulp and for a certain sort of traditional ways of movie making is undeniable. It's in every costume choice and the art deco set dressing and the deliberate camera moves. I, I love the way the light moves across the actors' faces. Um, and the casting here is is amazing. Tony Collette plays Zena. Davis Strathairn is the alcoholic Pete. Kate uh, Blanchett in full-on femme fatale mode is Dr. Ritter. And around them are gathered some of the best, most distinctive faces in Hollywood. One of Del Toro's favorites, Ron Perlman, of course, from Hellboy, the original two Hellboy movies, alongside Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, Mary Steenburgen, uh, Clifton Collins Jr., Tim Blake Nelson, and Stephen McHattie. And of course, you know, uh, Del Toro likes to make movies in Canada. He comes up to Toronto to make a lot of his features, and you can really feel that, I think, in this film. Well, you mentioned the Art Deco set dressing, and I have to give a shout out to my former Bel Air Elementary School and Eric Graves Junior High homeboy Shane Vio, who's uh, we grew up uh, in, in Woodlawn and Dartmouth together, and uh, he he won the Oscar as part of the art department on uh, The Shape of Water. So, and he's working again uh, here on this film. Obviously, Del Toro likes his work, and and he clearly loves working with Del Toro. I mean, who wouldn't? Especially if you're in that gig. So, uh, and uh, you know, they won the Oscar for Shape of Water, and I, I the work here is impeccable. The the, the Art Deco look of of Dr. Uh, Dr. Ritter's office and, and the, the look of the carnival and just that it just, it's at that kind of grimy perfection, you know, nothing looks too clean or too polished. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I could watch this movie with the sound off quite, quite honestly, maybe it could have been as, it's funny. He did the black and white version of it, which is played in some theaters, I think, but, uh, not here, unfortunately. Uh, I, but I, I, I'd love to see him edit it as a silent movie and just do the title cards and just let you, watch it unfold that way. Yeah, it is a beautiful film to look at. Now, I think this might be where you and I split. Now, actually, I don't know how you feel about this, Stephen, but but my biggest complaint about the new version of Nightmare Alley from Del Toro is I think it's baggy. It's a oh, long... No, no and, we don't diverge Okay, <laughs> I do agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I really enjoyed the film throughout, but boy, the longers are really hard to take. It's a very, very slow-moving film, I think, to the point where it becomes a detriment to the narrative thrust um you know i feel like uh he lets scenes play out for way too long he pays too much attention to supporting cast to uh to the detriment of the film i think it could have and i say this a lot with films these days that they just go on too long but this one 
it's just about pace. That's all. It's not that the the material doesn't deserve uh, time to let it sink in, but the pacing is so gradual um, that uh, I feel like Del Toro is trying to make his own sort of Shawshank redemption. But because there's no you know Red or Andy to make you generally care, someone to really care for the dark mechanics of the story about desperate, unhappy con artists and their marks become it just it's almost too grim to care to to feel invested i guess yeah it does it does go slack a bit um you know as we approach the final third of the film and it, it, it you know when, when they're sort of setting up their the the ultimate scam uh that that uh, well uh, it should be a surprise that it turns out to be stanton's undoing but especially if you've seen the original uh but it, it probably could have been done in a much more efficient way but but it gets kind of dragged out when they introduce the character richard jenkins character the kind of rich megalomaniac who uh you know wants to see his his dead beloved again um that that easily could have been you know made a little tighter and i mean this is what this is something like 45 minutes longer than the original film and obviously editing of feature films is a lot different in the 1940s but it could have uh it could have used a little more economy i think in, in that department as well yeah yeah absolutely but you know to its credit, these performances are solid throughout, and, and there is so much to enjoy. I feel like this is a film I will go back to. And if if you're listening to our show and you have the kind of patience to sit through an hour of us going on about films from like 50 to 80 years ago, maybe you'll, you're the kind of person that has the patience to sit through Nightmare Alley. Well, I mean, I mean, I just kind of drank it in as it was unfolding. So even though while I was experiencing the same, cause you know, we're back in Dr. Ritter's office again. Okay. We've been here before. And there's another scene playing out where they're kind of arguing about their intentions or whatever. The, the and, and I feel like there could have been maybe less of that, but I was still enjoying being in these spaces and just drinking in the set design and, and the, the costumes that, you know, the, the clothing that's just so perfect for the, for the period and all that stuff. Also trying to spot Ontario locations. Yeah. There were a few of and, them and, Buff yeah. and Buffalo. I, I, there's a, there's a great, uh, sort of art decoy building in Buffalo that gets a lot of use. Um, yeah, I think it's nice a, city that. hall or something. I think so. Maybe. It's like one of the, one of the main buildings downtown. There's also with whatever the Buffalo newspaper is or was that also has another great building downtown. I don't, I, obviously it's, I guess it's still there. Cause I think I saw it in, in the film, but, the, but there's a, it, there's a lot to uh, to take in, and that weird Ontario power plant that also shows up in Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and it's been in lots of other movies besides. I think Cronenberg's used it as well, and it shows up here as, uh, I guess, maybe the factory where Richard Jenkins is the, the overlord or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's, and maybe it's a water base. water treatment plant. Yeah, something, something like that. that. Yeah, yeah, uh, great looking building. You know, that classic kind of 1930s or 40s government. Uh, building model where, mm-hmm. where they actually put some thought into the architecture. And, I, you know, I just love seeing those kind of things. And, you know, even though I knew kind of roughly where it was and what it was, it was great to see it in the film. For sure. Now, we um, we should probably uh, direct folks to the first version of Nightmare Alley from 1947, directed by Edmund Goulding, based, again, on that novel from 1946, written by William Lindsay Gresham. And... Uh, I think the big difference between the earlier film and Del Toro's effort is the earlier one is narratively leaner and meaner. Tyrone Power brings 
plenty of charisma to his take on Stan. But, you know, it's funny. There's little doubt with him that he's bad to the bone. We see it. It's only a matter of time before he makes some kind of terminal mistake where I feel like uh, Bradley Cooper makes him more sympathetic just by virtue of Bradley Coomer, Cooper's being uh, a likable guy. Um, so so this is – but the, the 47 version is a hell of a movie, and I'd really recommend it to folks who have the Criterion channel or who are interested. Um you know, we start right into the plot with the conniving carnival barker, Stan, selfish and cunning, looking to get up in the world. He's making plans with Zena, played by Joan Blondell here, the fake psychic. She's uh, sort of on the downside of her vaudevillian career, painted, paired up with Pete, uh, the, a rummy. But Stan's ambition, of course, uh, will take him places. And uh, and then he, he uh, gets friendly with another carny, as we mentioned, the much younger Molly, here played by Colleen Gray. And uh, they do run off together, just like in the in the later film. Uh, it is a story about codes and deceit and about the dark side of show business. Now, I've never really been a, that much of a fan of Tyrone Power, but he is as good as I've ever seen him in this film. He's convincingly ambitious, uh, not that likable, but it's on the knife edge of being uh, the antagonist-protagonist thing, which is something I really like to see in films where the protagonist is, you know, has our sympathies for part of the time and then maybe not so much other times. Yeah, it's 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 an unusual picture for both its star and director. Uh, Edmund Goulding had been working in film since the silent days, and this is really the twilight years of his career. He he he'd only go on to make a couple more films. Uh and uh, and it's, you know, Tyrone Power is playing very hard against type here. Uh but I think uh, that was kind of what Power had been struggling with throughout his career. You know, before this, uh, both director and star had worked on the adaptation of Somerset Mom's uh, The Razor's Edge, which I think was a dream project for Tyrone Power, and later for Bill Murray, weirdly enough, who also wanted to do the remake. Oh, I remember, so sure, yeah, from the 80s. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I guess, you know, they must have been in cahoots on this film to do something very unlike anything they'd ever done before because it, it, it you know, it, it feels so dark and grimy for a period, for a film of this period, and for something from, from 20th Century Fox, which didn't really normally venture into this realm. I mean, they weren't exactly known for their horror films. They made a couple, because, of course, every studio did, but it wasn't really their forte. And yet here is a film that, that blends, you know, that that the kind of horror that we were seeing in films from, say, Val Luton at RKO, or some of the sort of better universal titles, uh, mixing that kind of dark horror with the, with the kind of film noir aesthetic and, uh, and and really knocking it out of the park, especially, you know, it's, it's just hard to re- imagine what people who saw this in 1947 must have thought because it, you know, it really goes for it. And, uh, you know, that uh, is certainly the Del Toro film ups the ante in terms of, uh, in terms of violence and, uh, and uh, and gore in, in some spots, but but uh, but here I, I have a feeling that people were com- would have been completely terrified by this when it came out. Yeah, and it is it is noir. We we actually considered it for our noir vember episode a couple of episodes ago, um, but uh, thought well we should save it and save it until the Del Toro film comes out. And I'm glad we did because it's fun to compare the, the sort of changes that have 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 gone through this the story in these in these uh, adaptations, which are so many years apart. Yeah, well, it's it's considered a noir, I guess, but it, but but because it does have that horror aspect to it, and uh, it, it it definitely has a foot in more than one genre. But certainly, Fox itself has packaged. I have a DVD of it that was in this kind of Fox noir series, uh, and I'm I'm pretty sure it's shown up on Noir Alley on TCM at one point or another. So uh, 
but uh, that's kind of like the come on into a film that goes about as dark as any film noir ever does. But it has all the elements, certainly a femme fatale and a, that downward. Sp- I mean, this is the most downward of downward spirals you can imagine. So uh, it's it's uh, it perfectly fix, fits that uh, mode. And I, I, I do like comparing it to the Del Toro. Obviously, it's it's tighter in its narration. Um, uh, it's it's it, it doesn't necessarily have as grandiose view of, of the carnival i mean del toro i mean we spent a lot more time in the carnival in the new version than we do in the old one uh but uh but the glimpse we get here is, is again it's still pretty grimy and and uh and seedy and and uh, you know i kind of appreciate that uh, that they didn't sort of stint on that regard either hi and welcome back to lens me your ears i'm stephen cook I'm Karsten Knox. And we're looking at films that are set in the realm of the carnival, the traveling road show, the, uh, the type of entertainment that kind of segued into the movies and uh, as, as, as people went from live in-person entertainment to more of the, the big screen in, into the 20th century. And uh, few directors uh, embody both worlds as strongly as Todd Browning. Uh, Todd Browning worked in the carnival uh, for years before getting into films, I believe he got in as an as an actor at first, and then uh, quickly uh, took a role behind the camera. Frequently teaming with Lon Chaney, the Man of a Thousand Faces, as his uh, as his star, uh, often um, in some very innovative and sometimes torturous makeup designs that uh, Chaney uh, used to contort his face and contort his body uh, to bring these memorable uh, silent. Uh, silent screen creations to life uh, making him one of the biggest stars of that era especially in the 1920s uh, when he was in big blockbusters not directed by Browning but certainly notable films like uh, Phantom of the Opera and The Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, both famous for their distinctive and also apparently quite painful <laughs> makeup designs either with pounds of of latex and rubber or the the way he kind of contorted his face to be the kind of the death mask of the phantom but um but that that carnival uh, thing was something that Browning kept returning to over and over again, uh, even without Cheney. I uh, made films like The Show with um, uh, John Gilbert was the star. Of that it was a romance mystery set in a in a sideshow, which is paid homage to in uh, the new Guillermo del Toro film uh, Nightmare Alley. There's there's a shot of a Spider Woman, which is taken directly from the silent film The Show. Uh, so uh, I, clearly, del Toro was binging on some of these films uh, prior to. Putting uh, putting his own vision of the the carnival together. Um, uh, we'll talk about the unholy three, which is starts out in a in a, in a carnival sideshow, and then uh, a group of its uh, attractions decide to go into a life of crime, or they're already in a life of crime, I guess, as the as the story commences. Uh, but the the film that that Browning is probably best known for in this realm because it was so controversial at the time and continued to be controversial for many, many years afterwards. And that's Freaks uh, from, I believe, 1932. And it was it was a film unlike uh, any other at that time. And it was the fact that it was made by the glossiest of Hollywood studios, MGM, is still a little hard to fathom today. It's uh, the fact that it even got made is is kind of a mind blower. The fact that some executive at MGM thought that making a film about a sideshow using real life uh, human sideshow curiosities or oddities or as the title implies freaks uh would be a good idea cinematically is is kind of i mean i'm glad they made it because there's no other film like it but at the same time uh it's 
it can be kind of hard to watch uh, all these years later because of, uh, I think in Browning's mind, I mean, he loved working with these people and he loved giving them the work, giving them a job, putting them on the big screen. Uh, in his mind, it wasn't necessarily exploitative. Uh, but, uh, you know, and it's it's the, probably the only chance that many of these people had to be in a motion picture of any kind. So, But it's, it's basically a sort of a love triangle revenge story set uh, in a carnival. There's... Um, uh, Harry Earls, who's also in a couple other Browning films, he's he's a short person who uh, the uh, sort of the, the beautiful uh, uh, trapeze artist Cleopatra learns that uh, he has inherited uh, a whole bunch of money, and uh, so she uh, conco- concocts a romance and a marriage with him. But primarily, uh, she's working with the strong man, uh, and uh, they're the you know they're basically planning to poison him and abscond with his inheritance. And uh, and then, of course, what happens is one of the most terrifying films and terrifying scenes in any film uh, of the 1930s when uh, the sideshow people come together to, to save their friend. And uh, you will not forget it. If you, if you haven't seen Freaks, uh, it will sear images into your memory that aren't going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, of course, heard the, I knew the reputation of the film. I knew about the famous song. There is a moment during, after the wedding, oh, wherein yes. uh, the group of, uh, of uh, performers sing a song to Hans and Cleopatra the, at, over a meal. One of us, Google Gabble, we accept her, we accept her. One, one of us, us one, one of us. us. Like, it's just, that has, that, that song has carried further than even the film itself, I think. Um, and I think you're right. I, I feel like the filmmaker has genuine compassion for the his cast and for his storytellers as part of their collaborators. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Uh, there's definitely a theme of self-love and pride and beauty on the inside being important. However, you're not wrong. It is hard to watch at some of these scenes. And the one you're talking about, late in the running, they're in the pouring rain where I felt like Browning was actually exploiting the audience's fear of these folks for the sake of a scene of horror. And I really wasn't sure how I felt about that. I just I, I was made very uncomfortable by it. Well, I'm guessing he just thought it would get a rise out of the audience. Mm. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know how much, how metatextual he was getting with, uh, with that particular moment in the film. And uh, it's, it certainly is effective and unforgettable. And I think that was his primary uh, thought. But, uh, but, you know, years later, it plays, it plays out much differently. Uh, and, you know, MGM, I, you know, they did release it, but it didn't stay in theaters very long. And then it was um, one of uh, some of the more... Uh, exploitative uh, states' rights kind of uh, fly-by-night film uh, distributors got a hold of it, and it went out, uh, you know, sort of it became one of the early Grindhouse features uh, being released under multiple names and, you know, in different packages with other films and that kind of thing, right up into the, you know, the 50s and so on. Um, and uh, it just became a staple of those kind of uh, fleabag theater kind of bills for years and years after I, I was lucky enough the first time I saw it I got to see it in 35 millimeter at Wormwoods they had a B movie festival um, that ran for a couple of years where they there was someone in Toronto who had collected a bunch of these prints and kind of sent them out as kind of a package and uh, so the first time I got to see it was on in 35 millimeter on a big screen with a crowded theater so uh, I got to it wasn't watching it on video at home it was in a packed house with people audibly gasping at 
frequently throughout the course of the film. So uh, I, I got to see its uh, its power. You know, this would be in probably in the, the late 1980s or thereabouts. But uh, I did get to see the power of this film firsthand uh, over a contemporary audience. And it, it still uh, still packs a wallop. Yeah, it, it, it does. And I definitely felt that that the strength of of the performances and and I felt I felt a lot of things watching Freaks from 1932 and I I'm not sure if I'll be in a hurry to get back to it but uh it certainly is and you know it's funny after watching it seeing a lot of the film subsequently realizing how much they are indebted to this film like that I keep seeing shadows of it or scenes from other movies where I was you know we're going to talk about the Elephant Man there's a scene in the Elephant Man that feels like it's right out of Freaks oh, yeah. um you know and I I mean clearly it was seen by other filmmakers looking to to tell stories in this world, even though, like I read that in in the UK, for instance, Freaks was not available to be seen at all until no. the 1960s. Oh yeah, it was banned in a lot of places. And and uh, in Del Toro's Nightmare Alley, if you look closely during some of the sideshow scenes, he's got people made up to look exactly as characters from Freaks. They're not even sort of like characters from Freaks. He's got people made up exactly as. Uh, I'm trying to think. Well, Schlitzie, um, uh, the well, the pinhead. That's that's not a very polite term, but that's uh, is is in there. And uh, the I don't not the chicken lady, but the, the one of the the bird woman, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, is is in there, and a couple others, I think. Um, you know, maybe the the half man, half woman person is uh, is also somewhere in in the mix, and it was, it was just kind of weird to see like exact reproductions of characters from Browning's Freaks in there, but it made total sense. Like I can see why he would have done that. And I'm sure most of the people that watch Nightmare Alley may not uh, pick up on that necessarily, but it was, uh, it was certainly an interesting detail. Mm. Now, Stephen, you wanted to mention a couple of other uh, Browning or Browning connected films from that era and the Unholy Three specifically, uh, which I, I, uh, is a, is a, there's a, there's a silent version and then there's a sound version. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's, I mean, like I say, he returned to this milieu many times. Uh, now this, uh, the unholy three was a silent film, uh, with, uh, Lon Chaney and Harry Earls, who was in Freaks, and um, in the silent version, I think it's Wallace Beery plays a strong man, and uh, and Chaney is a ventriloquist, Professor Echo, who's got a very creepy dummy uh, in in both films, uh, and then they made a, a sound version in 1930, a frequent. Uh, um, occurrence in the early days of sound when they were scrambling to to find new things to do they would go back to popular uh silent films and then remake them as as sound films and and uh in this case it wasn't directed by browning it was directed by jack conway who was a a a pretty steady hand at uh, mgm and worked well into the late 40s often working with uh, clark gable a lot of the time on some pretty solid you know not necessarily not the sort of top of the line pictures but but sort of big a picture earners for for Warner Brothers things with like Boomtown with uh, Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy and that kind of thing. So he's a pretty pretty solid journeyman MGM director and and uh, doesn't bring any sort of specific flash to this that uh, that Browning didn't have in the silent version. It's 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 uh, it's 1930. It's still got some of that early talky stiffness about it, but it's great. Uh, Cheney Cheney is uh, is Echo, but uh, he and the strongman and uh, the uh, the short person played by Harry Earls, uh, who pretends to be a baby a lot of the time, uh, 
perform these robberies. So initially they're with the carnival, but then they kind of go off and freelance and they're running a pet store. So it's got the most parrots in one scene that I may have seen in any movie, which is, of course, a big thumbs up for me as a parrot owner. <laughs> it's great to see a scene with so many birds. And of course, the scam in the pet store is that uh, Cheney, the ventriloquist, throws his voice as pretends that all the parrots can talk when of course they don't they aren't necessarily trained to talk they're just sort of he's speaking in a parody voice and then selling the parrots to the people who can afford them then they deliver the parrots and if the home is full of valuable goods they'll return and uh, rob the house of any uh, any valuables it might contain so that's their scam uh, and uh, because Cheney is acting as a kindly old grandmother he's in grandmother drag so you know, nobody suspects him because he's the kindly old grandmother. And, of course, the, the Harry Earls is playing a baby and the strong man. Well, he's probably the most obvious one of the bunch. But uh, anyway, that's their scam. But uh, but also, you know, they have a Daisy who's a, who's a pickpocket with them, a young woman that they're all kind of looking after. The strong man has kind of a thing for her, but she's not really that interested in him. Uh, and then a young kind of college student type who's working in the pet store falls for Daisy. And that introduces a whole bunch of complications when one of their jobs goes wrong. So uh, you can kind of see where it goes, but the whole idea of, of, of everybody's portraying two different things. You've got uh, professor echo, who's also the old lady and you've got the, the strong man who's trying to be the, the doubtful son-in-law at the same time. And then you've got, Harry Earls is kind of a really cranky short person, <laughs> real mean character, but also playing this innocent baby at the same time. It's it's pretty funny, but also pretty dark and grim. And uh, like I said, the, the silent version's the better version to see, probably, but the, the talkie might be a little more accessible. All right, there you go. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to get into here for sure. Um, but let's let's move on now to La Strada yes. from 1954. Federico Fellini's tale of a woman, uh, Gelsomina, played by his wife in real life, uh, Gioletta Messina, who is, she's sold to a street performer, Zampano, played by Anthony Quinn, because her mother is poor and she has four other kids to feed. In fact, um, uh, Gelsomina will be replacing her own sister who died while in the performer's care. So this isn't a, this doesn't seem like a, it's, there's a lot of future in this particular work. Um, she of course becomes a performer too. She becomes a clown to help introduce Zampano and his chain breaking strongman antics. She doesn't have much to say at first and her mother says she's different, perhaps simple minded, but he is certainly a beast and he treats her terribly. And then she tries to escape, but he finds her and he beats her. Um, but then she meets a tightrope walker called The Fool, played by Richard Basehart, and uh, and some kindly circus people, and it helps to give her a bit of self-esteem, and she chooses to stay with Zampano anyway, but she does start to, uh, to take on the philosophy that everything has a purpose, including herself, and she takes that to heart for all the good that it does her. This is a a pretty grim uh, but heartfelt story, uh, and uh, it's a deeply sentimental one, a road movie. Uh, the print on the Criterion channel right now is really something. The look of it, the gorgeous black and white, the lots of exterior, cinemato exterior cinematography showing post-war Italy, that bleakness, very well suited to this material. It's, and it is really about two things. It's about finding purpose in the world and managing loneliness. And uh, it is, uh, it's, it's something to see. I mean, I, I know, I've seen a number of Fellini's films. Uh, you know, you sort of know the kind of tone of the films that he he made and and of course his legend uh, with music by Nino Rota including a lovely violin and then a trumpet signature that the fool and then Gelsomina plays uh 
it's it's a special film it's it's a sad film yeah i, I wasn't i didn't i wasn't prepared for how sad it was going to be i I, th- I knew that it was going to be about a traveling uh well i won't call it a circus it's really just the two of them going from town to town and then they do meet up with the circus briefly uh in the middle of the film uh that doesn't go terribly well but but it's uh it's you know i always think of fellini as being kind of light and sparkly um you know with with a serious undercurrent but but you know there's also a certain amount of froth in what he does and but this is this is really him still kind of in his neorealism mode of his of his early work and and i i also you know it's 1954 i think is when the film came out so you're right about the post-war aspect of it that that you know there's always ruins in the background or that you know we we're still seeing a country that's trying to pull itself up out of the uh the destruction of the second world war and that's kind of this backdrop that this pair are going from town to town in their kind of weird little motorcycle truck uh contraption um you know ostensibly to bring joy into people's lives but there's so little joy in the certainly in the life of zampano uh he's such a bitter angry character you kind of wonder how he got into you know so-called showbiz in the first place but uh, but they're they're such engaging characters and Gioletta Messina has those those puppy dog eyes uh you know you can just watch her for for hours and hours and and her her arc is just fascinating and and uh endearing and and tragic and and uh you know I just I just I just adore her yeah no she is a wonderful wonderful character and she's clearly her work here is clearly inspired by Charlie Chaplin who apparently was very flattered by her performance and and made her know like let her know that that was the case um and uh, this film won the best foreign language film at the oscars in 1957 i guess it took a few years to open in the united states um but it's uh yeah it's something to see and uh yeah i i came away from it quite uh you know, melancholy, I guess you could say after I watched the film. Yeah. And Basehart as the fool, the tightrope walker, he's very good as well. And, and I mean, it should be noted that both he and, um, uh, Anthony Quinn are dubbed by other actors in the film. They're, they're not speaking Italian. <laughs> they're not Italian speakers. Uh, but it's very well done. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it was a matter, of course, in the Italian film biz that, that the sound was all done later anyway. So, uh, the dubbing is not, as intrusive as you might think and and uh even though there are other people speaking their lines uh they're both very compelling in those roles and and uh and basehart was also in um another uh fellini film uh now i'm forgetting the title the swindlers is the anglophonic version but um uh and now i'm drawing a blank on it but anyway he's very good in that film as well and i don't think he ever got as challenging uh roles in the american films that he made now, before we wrap up this segment, we should talk a little bit about The Magician. Yes. This is also a film you can find in the Criterion uh, streaming channel right now. It's from 1958, and uh, I guess, I gather, this is Igmar Bergman, and I gather it's considered one of his lesser films. It's uh, part comedy, part drama, investigation of show business and fakery and belief versus science, uh, set in 1846. It's about a traveling magician's troupe led by Max von Sydow as Albert Vogel. 
who arrive in Stockholm and are immediately confronted by the authorities who sort of quiz them on their possible supernatural skills to see whether or not they're charlatans. And I guess if Charlotte, that kind of thing is, is you know, is, I guess, illegal. Um, now, there's a, the grandmother. She's part of the troop. She might be 200 years old, and she claims to be a psychic. There's there's a magician who's, uh, the magician's wife who's disguised as a man. And there's the question of, of the man that they met on the way, the actor who supposedly dies, but then reappears <laughs> later on. Um, you know, I'm always surprised, Stephen, by uh, European films, especially from this era, because in, in Hollywood, they were so buttoned down and you couldn't show anything on screen. And here in, in a Swedish film, the sensuality is very evident. Uh, there's a seduction. There's violence between a man and a wife after she admits that she was seduced and then then she accuses her husband of cowardice and he strikes her, which makes her amorous. I mean, there's some very suggestive stuff going on here that you just don't, I mean, immediately surprises me, uh, you know, from a film from this era. Yeah, there's more than one seduction, actually, now that, we think, mm-hmm. now that I think about it. But uh, it's a very earthy film. And that, and that's, you know, early earlier in the 50s, of course, that aspect of foreign films is often exploited. Uh, there's a Bergman film called My Summer with Monica that was kind of, in the States, translated into some sort of lusty teenager romp for, again, for sort of a, a there was like this weird gray area between art house and grindhouse and, and Mo- Monica or my summer with Monica was turned into something like that with a very exploitative, uh, ad campaign. You see some of the, some of the posters for it's America. And it's, of course it's nothing like that. You know, there's maybe like one scene where you see someone skinny dipping from a distance or something like that but it certainly wasn't wasn't the sex romp that uh they were advertising it as but they 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 took these films and kind of played up that aspect of the film because of course they were you know europe was more permissive and you could be more adult and franker and realistic in your depiction of relationships between people and that's that's one of the the real treats of watching these bergman films all these years later and seeing how well they stand up because they're very honest and they're so direct and and um even though this film takes place in the late 1800s uh you know the the characters still feel very real and they're um you know their their interpersonal relationships are are very frank and and uh, and meaningful and 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 that's what made Bergman the, the genius that he was uh and you know is still considered uh, to this day and and you know, the magician I had not seen prior to watching it for this episode. We we could have, uh, I, I suggested this and also Sawdust and Tinsel, which is about, you know, really more about a, a kind of traveling circus troupe with a clown and, and that kind of thing. But but I, I've seen Sawdust and Tinsel and it's terrific. I, I recommend it. But it was great to watch something that was new to me. There's, there's still a number of his films that I have not uh, yet experienced. And this one uh, was a real treat, especially, you know, with Max von Sydow. Uh, you know, one of the great presences in film, period, and and he doesn't even utter dialogue until about a, an, oh, just over an hour into the film. He's completely mute um, for the first hour of the film, uh, but he has such power as Vogler, the magician, with his, you know, he's got the beard and the, the dark hair and, and the glare that uh, that is so distinctly Max von Sydow, and, and uh, he's just such a stunning presence without any dialogue at all, and uh, it's it's a testament to his power and also how well he worked with uh, with Bergman that that really makes this film sing. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of the Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food; it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? 
You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. So on this segment of our uh, look at carnival films and films with carnivals uh, here on Lends Me Your Ears, uh, we're going to start with The Elephant Man from 1980. Uh, now, my recollection of this film, having seen it years ago, that it was David Lynch in a far more conservative form than his later work, as most would know, and things like Blue Velvet or Lost Highway. Um you know, this is more of a straight-ahead biopic, but actually, watching it again, I realized how it's got so many Lynchian qualities. Uh, it starts with two close-ups of the face of a woman, and then the suggestion of a herd of elephants running her down, uh, and then followed by the sound of a baby screaming and a cloud of white smoke, all this strange imagery and sound work. Um, and then we get the black-and-white biography of John Merrick, uh, played by John Hurt, who, of course, we've talked about Mr. Hurt's and his work. Uh, we devoted a whole episode to to remembering him after he passed away here on Lens Me Your Ears. Um, we talked about him. But um, but John Merrick in the late the mid to late 19th century was a deeply deformed man. And we meet him when Dr. Frederick Treves, Anthony Hopkins, takes an interest in him, saving him from a carnival sideshow. And when he does, the doctor puts John Merrick in an isolation room in the hospital he works in, uh, right up by the bell tower, which strangely reminded me of the hunchback of Notre Dame a little bit. <laughs> I think that might have been on purpose. Yeah. So then uh, Gil, John Gilgood shows up uh, in the, as a manager of the hospital, Mr. Carr Gom. Uh, he gets a great line or two and delivers them with all the vigor and stately style that he was known for. Um, and I enjoyed the fact that the, 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 the film really does a good job of showing the compassion of the doctors and nurses for this man. Um, and, and of course, Merrick, although at first barely spoke because he was so shy and maybe even ashamed of his situation, his, his deformity. He, he turns out to be a wonderfully uh, sweet and, um, and kind person and becomes a bit of a sensation. Of course, then the question is, is this doctor, played by Anthony Hopkins, exploiting uh, this man, uh, even though the people who he's becoming friends with now are part of the sort of like the cream of London society? Is it the same sort of thing as the, the parallels between his sideshow life are, are directly addressed, which I, I, I really enjoyed that kind of discussion and this is why and then we get michael um uh, elphick as this sleazy local type who keeps getting paid to bring people up to merrick's <laughs> so room creepy. so creepy yeah yeah but it was so good to see this movie again and be reminded of its uh, of its power and its uh, and its sort of grace uh, in, in many ways uh, uh one of my favorite uh, lynch films yeah i saw this when it came out uh at the penhorn cinema in dartmouth <laughs> weird to see it in a kind of mall multiplex kind of environment but that's that's where i saw it for the first time and uh, i i actually had seen eraserhead at that point so I had an idea of what I was in for, but uh, of course, this was one of the first times Lynch got to have a huge budget and uh, and you know top of the line actors like like Anthony Hopkins and John Gilgood, and uh, you know he really he really proved himself with this film. Uh, you know, working with uh, the great Freddie Francis as his cinematographer, uh, it's just a it's just a stunning achievement, and it plays so well today because it really is about having empathy for others and about compassion and and uh, for those who are different and and I think that message of it still uh, still comes through pretty loud and clear I think Lynch was 
you know, has, has always been kind of ahead of his time in so many ways. And I think that plays through here, even though it's a Victorian uh, London story, uh, it's it's very contemporary and it's um, calling for, for, you know, that kind of sympathy and empathy and, and, and something we could obviously all use a little more of these days. And, and Hurt is fantastic, even under all that latex and, and, uh, and his physical performance, uh, you know, embodying this remarkable person, uh, Hurt is, is phenomenal uh, in the role. I mean, you don't even think about an actor. Uh, you just see the, you just see John or, or Joseph, I guess, which apparently was his real name. Uh, uh, you just see him, uh, this historical person um, on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. And there are the gothic Lynchian touches. Like, I love the montage of smokestacks belching black soot and the furnaces burning coal, these sort of Victorian engines that support the society. I really enjoyed how he shot it with scenes fading in and fading out to black cross fading. Like, the film was shot in the 30s or 40s. Very convincing, but not precious. I'd also forgotten Anne Bancroft is in the film, uh, and a very young Dexter Fletcher, an actor who becomes a regular in Guy Ritchie movies and who's gone on to be a director, including he worked on, I guess he, he directed part of Bohemian Rhapsody. So yeah, he's doing very well for himself in his career. But but yeah, it was really great to go back to see this, um, you know, and uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a special film. Um, now, uh, we should move on, though, yes, to a couple, uh, <laughs> couple more before we wrap up Lends Me Your Ears. And the next one is one neither of us had seen, but was a, a surprise for me, and certainly a positive one was Carney from nineteen, also from nineteen eighty. Um, now I had always heard about this film. It's a, where Robbie Robertson, the famed musician from the band, of course, long solo career as well as a career as a composer of soundtrack music for movies. But here he has a lead role. He's Patch, a guy who helps manage a carnival. He's best buddies with Frankie, who is also known as Bozo, uh, played by Gary Busey, who dresses as a clown and gets in one of those cages where if you throw a baseball and hit the target, you drop him into a water tank. Uh, of course, he makes you want to drop him because he insults everyone who tries to give it a shot. Uh, and in a, some small town, he makes fun of this guy while teasing his date, Donna, played by Jodie Foster. She's 18. She's had enough of her mother and the small town, so wants to join the carnival as Frankie's girl and work at the carnival. And I would say, especially the first half of this picture is a real joy. You get some sense of the politics and management challenges of running this kind of a business. And you've got to see, you know, how you grease the palms of local police and politicians and crime bosses and how you manage unruly customers. All of that is sort of through the Robbie Robertson's character. Who's, and Robertson is great in this. Like, why he didn't act more? I thought he was really compelling. He's very convincing and just very natural in front of a camera. And maybe it's just from all that time on stage with the band and and you know, with Ronnie Hawkins before that. Uh, he's Yeah, it would have been great if, to see him pop up in other roles. I mean, Levon Helm did it from time to time and was very convincing in things like uh, Coal Miner's Daughter and so on. So, but, but I guess, you know, Robbie Robertson, I guess he's busy enough doing <laughs> with, other things with, with, his, with music and, and producing and so on. But, uh, but he could have spent more time in front of a camera. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, young Jodie Foster is terrific and great support from other, other notable actors as Carney's, including, uh, Meg Foster, a John Carpenter favorite, um, Kenneth McMillan, Elisha Cook Jr. 
Um, the, the film, I think, lets me down a little bit. Uh, it's got a rough, some directorial and editing issues, but it's the final 20 minutes or so I felt were not quite up to the standard of what went before. Um, there's an emotional conclusion about 20 minutes before the end, and then it becomes about... Uh, the sort of revenge over some crime gangsters. And I, I didn't find that was terribly compelling. Yeah, that makes it a bit lopsided. But uh, it so it's it's definitely not a perfect film. But, but uh, you know, the leads are, are certainly very sympathetic and believable. Jodie Foster is terrific. This is kind of, this was the year that she was like putting her foot down and not doing any more, you know, teen or junior roles and it's hard to like she basically took a three-year break her the last film before this was candle shoe a disney adventure film which of which i'm very fond but but here uh, this in 1980 she made this film and she made foxes two very uh two very frank and adult films i mean obviously she'd been in taxi driver but uh but here uh she's playing you know a more adult more mature um and, and certainly non-disneyfied kind of role and uh, and she's terrific here, and and foxes too. If you get a chance to see it, and uh, that was kind of the not a controversy, but it was it was a lot of the hype around this film was the fact that it was Jodie Foster, you know, making a more mature movie than uh, apart from Taxi Driver, what she was generally known for. Right now, uh, speaking of Disney, uh, we're going to finish off this episode of Lens Me Your awesome Ears. Awesome segue. Thank you so much. Um, with Something Wicked This Way Comes from 1983. This is a film I hadn't um, had never seen before. And I guess I'd heard of, but uh, it is from Walt Disney Productions. It's from a screenplay written by Ray Bradbury, I guess adapting one of his own stories. And from, I noticed it sort of falls in that space between Spielberg and Stephen King, kind of where Stranger Things resides now um you know with disney making sure it doesn't get too scary but it's definitely pushing the pg-13 sort of aspect at sometimes there are some pretty creepy set pieces here um jason it, it, it's, it's told through the story of two kids it's hard to say when exactly it's a small town in illinois maybe in the 30s jason robards wears a, a a fedora so we know it's earlier in the century but there aren't a lot of cars around so it, i found it hard to tell exactly when it's supposed to happen this in this strange town um and, and then of course a carnival comes to visit and everything's wistful and sad and nostalgic and autumnal and uh and it's a relationship between the son one of the kids and his father played by jason robards and um and there's a lot it's very death obsessed and then the, when the carnival comes to town they have an antagonist uh it's uh the place is run by jonathan price as mr dark and he's kind of a magician it's kind of a magical dark magic carnival um yeah, but that tension between the wholesome and the scary is what makes the film interesting, I think. I mean, we get we get a scene of a room full of spiders, uh, but we also get a lot of hokey special effects. So, uh, yeah, I, I wonder what you make of this. I think you must have seen it when you were younger. Is that right, Stephen? I did. In fact, I, I probably saw like a, a TV version of it. Like I saw it on the Disney Sunday Night Movie or something like that. And and. Uh, and then you know returned to it a couple times since then on VHS and DVD, and I, I have a real fondness for it. And yeah, the, the special effects are pretty ropey in spots, and some of that stuff was added after the fact. Uh, director Jack Clayton, uh, you know, not a prolific director. He made The Innocence with Deborah Carr, which is one of the best ghost stories ever told on film. Uh, and uh, you know, he and Ray Bradbury worked very closely together on this, and then the film was basically taken out of their hands and fiddled with by Disney after the fact, which is why we get kind of some of these 
you know, innovative for the time, but now horribly dated special effects, which I have a fondness for. I love hopelessly dated special effects, uh, you know, especially if they're practical ones. I, I, you know, if you can see the strings, it doesn't bother me at all. And, and you can definitely see the strings, uh, in a lot of cases, but, but I love, I love that on autumnal tone of the film. It's a great Halloween movie. Uh, it's really set around that time. And Jonathan Price is a great bad guy. He really, uh, he really, you know, takes this role with both hands. And, and there's a lot of other old pros playing, uh, playing parts in the film. And I, you know, I like, I like the fantasy aspect of it. Disney tried to make a couple of more grown up horror films around this time. There's also Watcher in the Woods with Betty Davis and this film was around that time. Uh, neither of them were particularly successful at the box office, but but you know, at least they were trying to do something a little different, I guess. And and uh, you know, my, my fondness for this movie, you know, might outweigh the actual qualities of it, but but there's a lot in it to like. And that wraps up our visit to the Midway here on Lens Me Your Ears, looking at films set in and around and adjacent to carnival life. And uh, hope we have introduced you to a few features that maybe you hadn't heard of. Certainly, we've enjoyed this this trip. Uh, And uh, yes, uh, you should be able to reach out to us when you like, and we'd appreciate that. Uh, We are on Facebook, and Lens Mirror Ears also has a Twitter account. And uh, Stephen, you and I both have Twitter accounts. Mine is named after my film blog, Flaw in the Iris, and yours? Mine is at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Many, many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities, uh, allowing us to to record here and for airing the show every second Tuesday at five o'clock many thanks also to our producers at the village soundcast network and many thanks to you dear listeners for listening in and we'll be talking about movies again with you very soon lens me your ears is hosted by stephen cook and karsten knox and is produced in halifax nova scotia at village sound for the village soundcast network all music courtesy of gypsophilia Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 